And our passage this morning is in Ephesians chapter 5, moving through the letter to the Ephesian church. We're now in chapter 5, and we'll do just the first bit of the chapter this morning. We'll go from verse 1 all the way down through verse 21. I'm not sure why the editors of our Bibles mark the passages the way they do. Walk in love is the heading in most of our editions. That's not really what the passage is about. We'll find that as we go along. Young Christians, young theologians, let me ask two questions for you to listen for this morning. What is a disciple and where do disciples go? Listen to see if you can find the answers to those two things as we spend time in the word of Jesus this morning. This is the good news from the Apostle Paul for the church, the church that looks an awful lot like ours. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. The sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness... But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. And therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Pray with me and we'll begin. Oh Lord, what good news it is that no performance of ours, no law keeping on our parts... No purification that we would try to make would ever wash us clean. It is not in our intent for our children or ourselves that makes us pure and whole and radiant and new. It is the love of Jesus that reaches out to take hold of us and to work in us for transformation. It's the good news of baptism that washing comes from outside of us And does all the work. And in Jesus we are truly clean and whole and pure. And now, 
show us how deep that purity is meant and intended to go with us. To show us the gospel in new, maybe previously unseen ways from this passage. But open our eyes and open our hearts and open our ears. That again we can find our lives are hidden with Christ. And in Him, we are restored and whole. And for all of these things, we will give you thanks. We ask them in the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. And would you be seated? Structurally, here's how our passage works. What is said very succinctly and tightly in verse 1 but then also in verse 2, what's summarized in a concentrated form in those two opening verses is pulled apart and explained at length in example after example in verses 3 through 21. Narratively and dramatically, here's how our passage works. When Jesus walked down the beach and called Peter and Andrew to follow him, When he called James and John to follow from a street corner inside a village. When he called Levi, better known to us as Matthew, out of his tax booth to come and follow. He's saying to us exactly the same thing in verse 1 that he said to them. Imitate me. The call to follow me means come with me in order to be like me. Become people who echo my words. Be people who resonate under my thoughts and my desires. At first it feels like this clanging dissonance, this clamor in you. But soon enough, it turns into a humming of the same frequency, a falling in tune. Be people who shadow my moves until more and more they become your own. Call follow me is the call imitate me. Paul called for imitation an awful lot, which is striking for us because imitation tends to make us uncomfortable. It seems fake. It's too chameleon-esque. But Paul was never afraid to call us to it. In 1 Corinthians 4, he says, I urge you be imitators of me. It sounds like Paul's gone off the track here, but listen to what he says. I urge you, be imitators of me. This is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Timothy grew up under me. And he's able to remind you of my ways in Christ. How Christ has overtaken my heart and my life, in other words. As I teach my ways in Christ everywhere and in every church... And then in chapter 11, further on in the letter, Paul says the same thing in abbreviated form. Follow me as I follow Christ. You imitate me as I imitate him. And other New Testament writers call us to the same thing. In the letter to the Hebrews, the writer says, Remember your leaders who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Imitate their discipleship. Believe it or not, discipleship is imitation. My major in college was ancient languages. My mother was so proud 
I'm not a linguist. Don't enjoy the study of linguistics at all. I don't particularly enjoy the study of languages either. I can do it, but it's not really what interests me. So it was a great choice of a major. Why in the world would I choose a course of study in ancient languages? Well, there was this one professor, the chair of the department. I remember the first class that I had with him. He was a man on the verge of retirement. He had a mane of long, red, graying hair and a smile, a smile that was never wasted and wasn't ever cheap, a smile that always seemed to see something in you that you couldn't see in yourself. And he would father you through his classes rather than prod you and push you and drag you academically through And if you failed the quiz, he felt like he had failed you. And more than once, I watched him dissolve to tears for his students who weren't doing very well. And I watched him and knew what I needed to learn at 18 years of age couldn't be found in books or lexicons or parchments or scrolls or fragments of documents. What I needed to learn, I could only find watching and listening to and mimicking my professor. So I settled on a course of study I didn't particularly like for time with a professor I loved. Discipleship is imitation. Following a teacher so closely that you become an extension of that teacher. You become like an offspring, a beloved child, as verse 1 says it. You pick up the language, the mannerisms, the ways of that one. You begin to bear an uncanny resemblance. And that's certainly the way Paul talks about it here. Be imitators of him. Because you're loved by Him. Be imitators of Him. Because imitation comes from love. He loves to give His ways to you. And because He loves you so well, you can turn around and imitate His love back to Him. And He'll never be disappointed with it. And you'll never be disappointed with it either. You'll never feel like you're giving to Him something cheap and chintzy. You'll always be satisfied loving him back in the very ways he loves you. After all, love, if it's truly love, and not just a blank acceptance of someone. Love, if it's more than that, if it's a full acceptance of that one with forgiveness and transformation attached, followed by even more acceptance. Love, if it's truly love, always inspires more of itself. Love, if it's truly love, is always worth repeating. That's why imitation is an expression of love. But we have cultural hurdles to clear here because culturally, for us, imitation has come to mean something less than love. Something that's an imitation is a knockoff, a ripoff. It's a facsimile. Something not genuine, something less than, like imitation leather that cracks over time. Or imitation pearls 
or crab salad, but on the menu, crab is spelled with a K. In all of our cultural biases, imitation means far removed from the real thing. But biblically, imitation means very deliberately, very purposefully moving closer to the real thing, becoming like the real thing ourselves. Maybe the trouble is we've moved so far away from the real thing that we can't recognize it anymore. One summer in Monaco, Charlie Chaplin was vacationing with his family. And there was, in one of the villages, a Charlie Chaplin look-alike contest. So the most famous man in the world decided to enter the contest. And he dressed up like his character, the Tramp. He put on a dark suit and put a round bowler on his head and did his duck-footed waddle twirling his cane all the way down to the village center, and he came in third place. (laughs) We wouldn't recognize God's beauty and His goodness and His love and His holiness if it were held out to us under our noses. And so that's exactly what Jesus did. He came to show us the beauty the goodness, the love, the holiness of God. He came to parade it around in front of us. He came to fill the Gospels with it so that the stories would ring in our ears and haunt our hearts and for some of us even captivate our imaginations. Jesus came to even move the beauty of God closer than all of that. Jesus came as the beloved child imitating All the things he loved about his father. All the things he loved about the ways his father loved him. Jesus came imitating all the things that make his father so perfect. And calling the rest of us to come be beloved children too. Instead of our typical inconsolable, runaway, brat-like selves. And that was the point Jesus was making on one occasion when the Pharisees came at him like dark-suited IRS auditors with briefcases and tax codes tucked under their arms and calculators and stenographers to take down his testimony. And they put in front of him a dangerous question. Rabbi, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus rolled his eyes. It was a setup. They would try to trap him, breaking either Jewish law or Roman law. If Jesus said, go ahead and pay taxes to Caesar, they could try him for idolatry because Roman coins bore the inscription, Caesar is God. And to use those coins, you were an idolater. And if Jesus said, no, you don't have to pay Caesar his taxes, then he'd be guilty of breaking Roman decree and Roman law. Either way, they could have him arrested. So Jesus sidesteps the trap. Bring me a denarius. There was a lot of fishing in pockets and murmuring. And finally, a shining coin is passed through the crowd up to Jesus. Whose picture is on it? Caesar's. And give it back to Caesar. It's his. And the coin glints and rings 
as he flips it with his thumb back out over the crowd. And then Jesus adds, and by the way, give back to God his image too. But Jesus never says what it is that has God's image on it. And the text says the crowd was amazed, which means they were confused. There was more nervous fishing in pockets, sifting through coins. But God doesn't mint his image on currency. Then where else would they find his image? A lot of nervous casting about. But Judaism and the Christianity that grows out of Judaism, they're both statueless religions. Why no statues in either of these faiths? It's not that God is opposed to seeing his image. He loves his image. But statuary can't hold it. It's too cold. It's too rigid, too dead. It doesn't convey convey anything of the warmth and the life in God's grace. So what then? This isn't a passage about taxes and politics and how to play Rome without getting burned. This is a passage about love through imitation. Caesar pressed coins with his profile on them to remind the people that the empire was his and to remind the people that they needed him. Rome was built on his power and on his rule. It was kept by his gifts and his abilities and his authority. And to have coins with his image on them filling their pockets, it was like grace from him. And to give coins back to him in the form of taxes, to hold his image back out to him in honor of him, it was like worship. Give Caesar his coins, Jesus says. Give him back his flat image. He loves to look at himself. But it leaves the crowd scratching their heads. Where is the image of himself that God loves? Where is the image that honors him and radiates with his beauty? Where is the image of his righteous power, of his gracious rule, of his tender but his forceful atoning presence? Ah, that image was standing right in front of them, turning their tricky questions inside out. Don't hold out on Rome. Pay the tax and stop holding out on God. How do we hold out on God? We keep the law. We add laws to the law. How do we hold out on Him? Give him back his image which has appeared to you in his Son. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of God's nature, Hebrews chapter 1 says. Jesus is saying to the crowd, worship God through the Son. That's what he loves. And Paul is telling us the same thing, continuing the same thought in our passage. God's beauty isn't in stained glass or cathedrals or ethereal choir anthems as beautiful as those may be. And God's beauty isn't found in the zealous spiritual exercises or the canonized busyness or the convincing but fake pieties that people like us love to invent and force on everyone around us. 
And God's perfect beauty isn't found in the mist that hangs in the forest in the wet dawn. Or in the star tide that gleams on the dark face of the ocean at night. Or in the snow-capped mountain peaks like the teeth of the earth biting into the blue heavens. Or in the fields of blue bonnets on a perfect spring Sunday afternoon in Texas. The beauty that flows from him. The beauty that's collected in one place and unleashed wherever he goes. His own ravishing, breathtaking beauty is in Jesus the Son. And when you imitate Jesus, he's putting his ravishing beauty in you. And when he looks at you, he loses his breath. And he can't take his eyes off you. He can't turn away from you when he sees you in Christ. And that's the mystery. Adam in the garden thought that to be beautiful like God, he had to take something. But in reality, he had already been given God's beauty, his sinless likeness. And all Adam had to do was believe God's word and trust his goodness and rejoice in God's generosity All these lush, lavish lavish gifts God was giving him. And in the same way, all Adam had to do was rejoice in what God graciously withheld. All the things that he said to Adam would not be good for Adam, but, but would be the end of him. That Adam fell into the trap we always fall into. He thought he had to do something more. He had to achieve something more to make himself beautiful. And he lost the image that God was most pleased with. In all of our attempts to make ourselves like God, we end up terribly disfigured and damaged in heart. And we're without the ability to make ourselves beautiful again. You don't have to, Jesus says. Give to Caesar the coins he wants. Give to God the image that he wants. How do we give him back something that we've lost? I was driving through town this week and the radio was on in the background and someone called into a local talk show and was asking if any of the listeners knew of an art restoration studio nearby. The caller had a bronze sculpture. It was damaged in a house fire. And in desperation, the caller was hoping that someone would be able to name a studio somewhere that a once beautiful piece, now ruined, could be restored. It can't be set out on display as it is, and the owner can't show it off to guests and friends. It's, it's probably the case that the owner can't look at it and enjoy it alone. It's too painful now to look at. Its former beauty is only in these damaging traces now. So in desperation, the call is put out. Who can help? Uh, The gospel is, Jesus is the beauty that God loves. The gospel is, Jesus is the beauty of God given for us to fall in love with. All other beauties are fading in comparison to Him as we live in faith. The gospel is, God is making us beautiful for Himself In Jesus. The beauty of God in Jesus is being pressed back into us 
as we follow him. And that's the point of Easter. We're two weeks away. We're two weeks away of tripping again over a holiday that more and more seems to us to be a religious remembrance sprinkled over top of a day filled with chocolate bunnies and colored eggs and floral centerpieces and brunches that fill our stomachs and leave our souls starving. A day filled with things that have no meaning. Is there a greater meaning to take the day back? Oh, Easter is beauty doing the hard work of inserting itself in you again. Easter is imitation. If you want to get swept up in the holiday, in the holy day, then do what Paul is saying here and follow Jesus. Go with him to be made like him. Go with him all the way to the cross. Be crucified with him, Paul says. In verse 2, Paul writes, Walk in love because Christ loved you and gave himself up for you. And we interpret that verse to say, I'll be generally loving. Jesus loved you so much that he was willing to die for you, so you be polite, you be nice, you be sweet. That's not at all what the verse is saying. Verse 2 is immediately followed by a string of verses that call us away from sexual sin and impurity and coveting, wanting to take something that was never given to us, something that was not intended to be ours. If you put That string of verses all together, verse 2, isn't about being generally, non-specifically sweet and nice and polite. Verse 2 says, give yourself up. You're the sacrifice. Convinced of Christ's love, you carry his sacrifice in yourself now. In other words, don't indulge in your sin. You die with Jesus Resisting your sins in your hearts. Refusing your sins with your body. Yes, but doesn't that hurt? It hurts like a neck-breaking crossbeam laid across you. It hurts like the bite of nails. It hurts. But the end of verse 2 says it's sweet. It's like perfume. It's like rich Fragrant oil, burning spices, deep, layered, exotic, mysterious, alluring. It's the fragrance that makes your head swim and your heart pound and your breath go short. It's the scent that drowns out the smell of everything that's rotten and sour and decaying in you. It's the scent you can't wait to catch again. Go with Jesus to be made like Him. Go all the way to a cross and past the cross all the way into a tomb and back out of your self-dug tombs. That's verse 14. Awake, O sleeper. Get up out of your cement sleep of sin. Rise up out of the dead. Walk out of your addictions to shame and brokenness. Walk out of all the impurities that you know intimately from the inside. The things not even proper for the saints to speak of. But you live in them like condemned houses. And it'll take effort. It'll take exertion and sweat and strain like a body 
climbing up out of death. Have you ever gotten up out of death? It will be beyond all your strength, but not beyond his. And that's the promise in verse 14. Christ is shining on you. The strength of the one who rose ahead of you is yours. Now in him, get up. And after all the strain and the struggle, in his overcoming, he'll make you look like himself. What does that mean? What does that look like? Like light shattering darkness, according to the passage. Light pushing the darkness back, chasing it away. He'll make you an assault, a ground war on the darkness that was once your playground and your prison. You'll look like the dawn breaking red and orange and unhindered and unstoppable in what's beautiful and holy and true and full of joy beyond joy and filled with undying hope. The life Jesus has saved you for. And the life Jesus is calling you to is a life of imitation. It's following Him through an endless series of moments where two opposing loves are at war on your heart. First, there's a love for His otherworldly beauty. And then, there's the competing love for the ugliness of your sin. And in the moment of heat, in the moment of struggle, imitating Jesus, following Him, You're supposed to find his beauty is so captivating and so strong, you can't pass it up. My younger brother was a small child. He and a friend from school wanted to open a detective agency. And to encourage their creativity, I suppose, my parents took out an ad in the classified section of the local newspaper. And they actually got calls for cases. But it was a little shocking. I think my parents were expecting casework like helping an old lady find a missing cat. Or looking for a lost set of car keys for an absent-minded neighbor. But they got calls as if they were hard-boiled private investigators... Chain-smoking, cold coffee-swilling, stay-up-all-night-in-a-stakeout vehicle, dashel hammock kinds of stuff. Well beyond the Scooby-Doo gang and the Hardy Boys. This was telephoto lenses on a camera for hard surveillance, not examining footprints under a windowsill with a magnifying glass. And my parents actually had to say to callers... I'm sorry, my eight-year-old son cannot tail your husband to the Holiday Inn out on the highway. (laughs) And they had to retract the newspaper ad. It seemed like a harmless imitation, but it went too far. And I don't want you to be mistaken. I don't think Paul wants you to be mistaken. This imitation goes too far. Come out of yourself. And follow after Christ and go with Him all the way to a cross and into and back out of a tomb and into the heart of godliness to fill up our own hearts and our own bodies. 
But how can we ever imagine giving ourselves to an imitation like this one? Ah, because it's like perfume. Perfume you've dreamed of catching just a trace of. And it looks like the rising of the sun to chase off the terrors of the night that went on for too long. It's the image of God that He loves. It is the closeness of God with us by being the ravishing image of God in us. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Forgive us, O Lord, for trying to make ourselves beautiful in countless ways on our own. All of our attempts are failures and disastrous. And they never achieve in us the beauty we think they will give. We need instead the perfect image, the perfect loveliness that Jesus himself embodied that is being worked in us as we follow him by faith and imitate him, thrilled and grateful for his grace and his kindness and his love. Forgive us for being people who think we have nothing at all to imitate. We can make our own way. Instead, make the beauty of Jesus enthralling and captivating again in the many moments of heat and struggle where the competing loves war and contest over our hearts. Make again the beauties of Christ too good and too compelling to pass up for the twisted ugliness, the painted allure of our sin. Give to us more of the beauty of Jesus this week and the things we say, and the things we do, and the things we chase after. Too long, we've chased after beauties that fade, and beauties that are not true at all. Now, build your image in us through faith in Christ Jesus. And for all of this, we will give you thanks. We ask it in the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.